Welcome to Diversity Dialogues, a production of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion in partnership with the Amici Podcast Program. I'm John Carr. I'd like to introduce you today to Troy Odenhall, a principal court analyst who joined the court system just a year ago. Troy's heritage is Native American and Puerto Rican, and perhaps the best introduction I can provide to his career is to simply read his own description from his LinkedIn page. Quote, Servicing the various communities globally and locally in New York City has been my calling for more than 20 years. The main focus of this work has been a direct involvement in community outreach, community organizing, and the socio-political economic development and empowerment of young people in underrepresented communities, both locally and globally. In November 2019, Troy accepted a position with the court system as a statewide human resources training manager. Troy, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Let's uh, start with the present and work our way back, if we could. Why did you join the court system, and what the, what does the statewide human services human resources training manager do? Well, in the office of uh training and professional development, a statewide training manager does all kinds of things from the onboarding of training of the onboarding of employees, providing supplemental supplemental training in technology-based software like Excel and WordPerfect that transition from WordPerfect to Word. Um, we also do specialized trainings for um, senior court clerks, uh, supervisory trainings. We also do mandated trainings, uh, whether it be sexual harassment or what we're doing now, um, which is our security mentor training to increase our um, cybersecurity capabilities. Our intentions basically are to increase the capacity and dexterity of, this, of the civil service workforce that we have here, as well as provide any augment, augmentation of services to maybe the judicial institute or other kinds of trainings. How has uh, life in that arena changed due to the pandemic? Oh, it made everything a, a lot more online, as you can see. Um, a lot of it is making a transition that we were trying to do um, instead of being a travel team in training to be an online resource that people can click a button and get trainings instantly. So what the pandemic is pr providing for or facilitating is a, a way of getting everybody online informed and capable of being able to have um, a system of work at home telework that is effectual for this court system. Do you, th do you think that's a... Uh... A paradigm that will continue post-pandemic? I think um, for one, for if you look at the ADA kind of aspect of the courts, it really helps for our people who are dealing with some kind of physical or dis disability challenges where they'll have better access. I think it only creates the dexterity of the courts, the reach of the courts, and as well as creating more service points where courts did not have that before. So instead of slowly moving towards that, we have now been pushed into it. Hmm. Interesting. You know, society-wide, the uh, pandemic may have forced us to do things technologically that maybe we should have been doing otherwise. Well, I think it's a great growth spurt if you want to talk about it. We can, if we can put it in that juxtaposition. A great what? If we can put it in that juxtaposition, it's a great growth spurt. Yes, yes. Um, now, you came to the court system with a, a interesting and unusual resume. You work for the Kings County DA and the U.S. Department of Commerce. You've worked in Indian Health Services. You have a bachelor's degree from CUNY, a master's from Baruch College. You're currently attending MIT, working on a certificate um, in sustainable urban infrastructures. Um, much of your career has been spent with the federal government, uh, not the state. But 
So what brings you here? What makes you a good fit for the court system? And flip it, what makes the court system a good fit for you? Sure. One of my one of my positions, or a lot of the work that I've done at the federal government, was creating capacity, capacity within staff, capacity within the organizational structures of that we were using, whether it's at the federal transit administration or the Department of Commerce. My focus was on learning and knowledge management, and that's exactly the role I was invited into here at courts. It's a way for uh, the courts to once again grow in terms of creating a knowledge base for civil service employees and for its management employees. Also, as, as a way for us to make that transition, which the pandemic has now forced upon us, uh, to create an online library and an online access for on-the-spot training. So that's where my fit into the court goes. That's where I see it going. I think it's just the growth potential for the position is amazing because of the pandemic, and it just seems like there was a little... Um, I'm going to say forbearance by the courts of seeing something like this happening by being that innovative and in creating positions like the Office of Training and Professional Development to move its stuff online. So kudos to the court for actually being Johnny on the spot, if you will, and sort of addressing these needs even before the pandemic came up. You seem to be the right guy at the right time. Uh, I, am only, I only hope I can play a, play a role that, you know, effectuates capacity. That's my thing. Now, um, one of the things I, I neglected to mention is that for the past uh, quarter century, you've had your own uh, consultant business. Um, yes. What, what is it, and are, are you still doing that? Um, what what it, what it has been for me is a way to sort of create capacity in the communities that I work for, whether in the Latino community here in Brooklyn, or whether in the indigenous community on the wider on the wider broad set. What I usually try to do within, or what I try to do in that aspect of my life is to create services for underrepresented peoples. Um, in particularly, especially after 9-11, I was working with the Muslim community here in the city of New York to sort of help build bridges into that community, as well as working with um, we call economically underrepresented communities where they're not receiving the kind of financial literacy, which has been my pet thing. Um, a lot of um, my work has been in the idea of creating financial literacy and a, a financial knowledge base for uh, inner city young people as well as adults. Uh, I've done a lot of training and curriculum development in the ideas of financial literacy. So a lot of it is financial literacy, um, housing rights, um, indigenous rights, as well as international indigenous rights, as well as working with the Latino community, in particular the Puerto Rican community here in New York City. What, what is the name of your consultancy? Uh, Troy, Troy Patrick Odenhall Associates. Makes sense. <laughs> now let, let's, uh, let's take a step back, a big step back if we could. So. Um, you were born in Brooklyn, and I believe you told me offline that your mother is Native American and was born on a reservation. Um, yes. Tell me about your maternal roots, if you would. What tribe? How did she end up in Brooklyn? Sure. Um, my mother is a member of the Black um, Blackfeet Nation in Browning, Montana. Uh, she was part of the Indian Child Welfare Act removals, uh, where she was brought to a boarding school here on the East Coast. Um, at a very early age, she was, she would depart herself from the boarding school from time to time until she made her way up here into New York, where she found a foster family. Um, and she came, became part of the entrenched indigenous community here in Brooklyn. That community kind of relegated itself around um, State Street and Atlantic Avenue. Um, a lot of the, a lot of those, a lot of part of that, a larger part of that community was a Mohawk. Uh, from mm -hmm. Tanawanda and Tuscarora and Cayuga and the various different reservations around the state. They were steel workers who worked on the um, buildings that were going up. And at the time, um, more 
she she worked with people. She hung out with people who were working on the World Trade Center, who was working on Chase Bank, who were working on all these buildings. But she got to intermesh with that community and became a part of the indigenous community here. New York City has the second largest um, population of indigenous in the country, next to Los Angeles. I'm I'm amazed. I think a lot of people will be surprised with that as well. Now. Was your was your mother separated from her parents when she was moved east? Uh, and she was part of the Indian Child Welfare Act, where um, children were removed from the reservation system and put into boarding schools, where they were taught um, curriculum that was based upon assimilation and acculturation. So not lo- not allowing them to speak the indigenous language, not allowing them to sort of have indigenous dress, cutting their hair, cutting their hair, or keeping hair short, to, especially for the young ladies. Um, there was a lot of um, rigid. Um, inputs into that. And that didn't really change until the Collier Commission, until FDR. And my mom was born at the tail end of how that was done. That's not done in the United States anymore. Um, Though the law still is upon, it's still within the United States code, um, that particular part of the code is not enforced. That sounds terribly unfair. It is, it is something that the history of the the history of the United States is still working through. In the recent court case in McGirt folks versus Oklahoma, that had to do with resource rights. Um, half the state of Oklahoma was reverted back to the um, original treaties that were signed by the various different tribes that were there, Comanche, Cree, um, Cherokee. So that's still working. We're still working through that history, and I hope that we have the, the, the fortitude to go on having the conversation. I hope so as well. Now, your father was Puerto Rican, and you were telling me something fascinating uh, earlier about how many people of Hispanic heritage actually have Native American roots. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Most indigenous, most of the most of the Western Hemisphere before Columbus was actually uh, indigenous, and the population that was colonized either by the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, the British, um, or or other um, post-colonial nations. Uh, they were colonizing populations that were already there, and those indigenous populations trans, transfixed or you know trans you know transmitted into the larger Latino populations or Spanish-speaking populations, whether in Honduras, Mexico, uh, Costa Rica, Bolivia. Um, these nations are predominantly indigenous nations. People they call them mestizos. Uh, Bolivia itself is 83% identify as indigenous in certain parts of Paraguay, Uruguay, especially those countries that are little less colonized, you'll find that majority of populations identify as indigenous before they identify as Spanish and or Latino. Hmm. How do you identify? I identify as a mixed race individual of indigenous and Latino descent. That's a good way to And an American, of course. Thank you. Um, So what was your childhood like growing up as a uh, walking, talking, melting pot? Um, that's well, growing up in Brooklyn, you have that everywhere. One of my best friends was um, Puerto Rican, French, Vietnamese. Another one was Costa Rican and Spanish. Another individual was Trinidadian and African. So I was living in the diaspora that I was just a part of or uh, some of those products. I did one thing that New York does, and we have it even in Buffalo and even in Albany, we have a lot of very unique people from different walks of life. And I did have to do a lot of code switching, whether it's speaking Cisco Anishinaabe or speaking Spanish. I've had to do that. But most New Yorkers, you'll find that we have we know how to sort of do that in the different communities we operate in. And the court is the courts are excellent in being able to do that right now. I'm I'm very glad to hear the courts are doing a good job on that. Now you obviously embrace your multi multicultural heritage. Was that always the case or was there a point in in uh, time where you decided to do that? Or was it something your parents instilled? Um 
it was something in the communities I involved myself. You know, I had the I had the opportunity and the luck to be part of the indigenous community here in New York City for a long time. So there was always the idea of giving back, and and being part of the Latino community, um, whether be on the board records the board of directors at United Puerto Rican Sunset Park or sitting on the uh, national uh, national coalition uh, national Latino coalition on AIDS there's a lot of work that I've done in both communities I'm very proud of but a lot of that is still you know trying to support the various different communities here in New York as well as um, nationally and globally now I know you distinguish between what you call your quote government name close quote and your indigenous name yes. which I think is pronounced isn't house Yes, um, Isn't House. Yes. What is a government name, and and where does Isn't House come from? Isn't House. Isn't Isn't House um, from the family tradition came from um, where we didn't where it was told that our family didn't have a technical last name, and it was around the time of I think from what, what the story goes around 1860 to 1862, somebody was born, somebody in the family line was born in a house. <laughs> And that's how that suppose that last name supposedly came from. Um, there are different names that can, our cultures have. We are given. Um, we were all given. A lot of people in Ellis Island were given um, change of names when they got here, and a lot for the indigenous community, we didn't have last names. So um, my my mother's last name came from her adopted family. Um, and my father's last name is Inglesias, but my mother never took that because that's not the tradition in the family. So um, that's where the names come from. And where does Odendahl come from? Oh, Odendahl, that, that, that gentleman in particular goes all the way back to Revolutionary War. He was an adjutant for um, the Marquis de Lafayette. Um, a large part of the family settled in the um, Northern Virginia, Maryland area, and the other part of the family settled here in New York. Um, Odin Hall has a rich tradition in the American Navy. My brother himself was a, a master sergeant in the Marines. Um, we have a big military family on that side. But wait a um, minute, Odin Hall wasn't your father's last name or your mother's, right? Uh, no, no. But that when, but my brother did maintain the mantle of Odin Hall by going to the Marines. I see. And the native side of the family is all military. So when you were so a kid, it, what was your last name? Odenhall. Okay. Okay. Son, yes. Okay. Now, Native American doesn't mean one thing. It, I believe no, it New York State, New York State alone has, I think, eight different federally recognized tribes, each with their own identity and culture and history. Is there any affinity among the tribes? In other words, do you identify in any way with the Mohawk or the Seneca or the Tonawanda? Um, they are part of what's called the Longhouse culture. Um, my people are from the plains, and we were very mobile, um, and we had different ways of honoring the ancestors and creating ceremony. So their ceremony here on the north in the northeast is around what we call longhouse culture, and we appreciate that um, that there's a difference there. Now I've been on all the reservations in New York State, even the ones that are not federally recognized, whether Shinnecock or Poopsbatuck on Long Island or the various different indigenous communities that uh, establish themselves in urban areas, whether here in New York or in Buffalo. Um, there's a lot There's a lot more native or indigenous communities than there are, should we say, um, the federally recognized ones. And their struggles are very unique to them. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of hope here in New York State that the conversation is progressing. I think for my state, Montana, it's a little different. So each nation 
each respective nation and each respective tribe has their own conversations with their uh, indigenous populations. And it's my job as an indigenous person here living in New York to respect the longhouse culture, whether it's Lenape or Mohawk. Um, and yes, you know, I, I operate with the modicum of respect for being on their nation territory. Now, you've done a lot of work with indigenous communities and a lot of work, particularly on the issue of HIV AIDS as it impacts the, the Native American community. What are the major issues among the indigenous groups right now? Of course, there's always going there's always going to be the idea of a cultural of saving our culture. Uh, languages are starting to pass away, um, as with the old elder population. Um, of course, COVID is COVID is like what we call the smallpox blanket of the modern age. It is taking a lot of our elders. It is taking a lot of our um, knowledge away from the land, whether it's on the reservations or in the urban areas, or even people who are just displaced from, from their nation territory. What we're finding is that as numbers always progress in the United States, uh, indigenous populations are overrepresented in poverty, um, under education, and of course, um, in the criminal justice system, um, also as well as suicide. So the challenges there are in every statistical area. So the idea, um, the idea that we still have a long way to go, we have a long way to go in terms of we have a long of creating that infrastructure that we hope can you know bring us all together as Americans as well as bring us to the realization that there are things out here a little bit more older than America that we still need to tend to. Mm. Much of what you mentioned um, could or has the potential to wind up in the courts or the legal system in one way or another. Are the courts as open mm -hmm. as they should be to? Indigenous issues. See, this is this is the, this is the sticking point, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. If indigenous issues are sovereign issues, the sovereign has to use the federal system and not the state system to sort of pursue the rights claims. And if we have to go out, if if indigenous have populations have to go outside that, there is the ICC. However, the United States is not beholden to that. There are policies and treaties that the United States has to remain adherent to, and those are some of the challenges that we see on the federal side. On on the state side. There's always going to be the idea of state control over indigenous lands, not necessarily in New York State, but in various states of state. In Oklahoma, it was the McGurk case that we were talking about that was just decided this year. Um, the idea there is that that's, those are sovereign issues taken up with the federal courts, and that's where most, most of those arguments will lie. Mm. Now, many of, these, many of these issues have been uh, percolating unresolved for a number of centuries. And I've heard it said that uh, the reason Native Americans seem to have very little political clout is that either they they don't vote or they don't vote as a block. What are your thoughts on that? Should, should the indigenous people be more politically active? Well, I will point that we have two beautiful, super intelligent leaders in the um, United States Congress, both Native American women, for the first time in history. Um, so. What we can we can talk about the statistical number there. Native Americans represent about one percent of the United States population, so That's of course they're not gonna, they're not going to have that much political clout at that point. Um, but the idea there, what we're really working with, is some of the ideas of you know we talked about the idea of sovereignty. Um, in the McGirt case, we saw sovereignty on full display. Um, what we'll see going forward, depending on the, the construction of the court and how it's going to go forward, is that how is that going to be taken as precedence. So the idea there is, you know, the conversation of being underrepresented in certain ways, especially in political clout, 
that goes for this state. In this state, we're not as prevalent, let's say, in North Dakota or South Dakota. In those states, they're electing indigenous populations. They will. There are places in the Midwest, Montana included, um, where if the indigenous po population votes a certain way, they will put in somebody, whether it's Mr. Uh, Senator Webb in Montana or the Congress, or the, or the young Congress people from the Midwest. Midwest, the political cloud is actually developed. You know, that cloud that we're talking about is developing more than it has before. It's becoming more focused and more sort of energized. But once again, we're talking about 1% of the population. It, it, that, it, it, I, I didn't realize you were that small of a minority. And, and 1%, even if you got everyone together, you wouldn't be able to make much of a difference politically, you know? Well, every population in the United States, if you want to, if we're going to run to cultural identifiers, mm -hmm. there are populations throughout the United States that will be able to push certain other populations, report their representation within the Congress. We can think about um, Ms. Uh, uh, Congresswoman Omar. Uh, we can think about Ms. Ocasio-Cortez. Um, uh, uh, um, they are being propped up or they are being brought up by a political clout in very specialized or very, you know, the way the United system work, the United States systems works through representative democracy. There, it's working because you're getting people who are of Somali descent, who are of Egyptian descent, who are of um, Palestinian descent, Puerto Rican descent in the Congress, getting that representation. The one thing that the United States holds, and I hope that this remains sacrosanct, is that we are representative of the people that who the people that we are serving. And we do it in the courts, and we're doing it more and more in the courts in New York State than ever before. And New York is looked to as a leader in that aspect. But we're doing it more and more as a country. Even with the pushback that we've been getting recently, I think that that representation is a benefit to the United States and not a detractor. It seems that the court system has made an effort here. I mean, the um, <clears throat> New York State, <clears throat> um, the consortium of the, the uh, federal, state, tribal courts, um, has been around for a while and, and, and seems quite eager to reconcile those inevitable, um, I wouldn't even call them conflicts, but uh, um, those uh, tensions, those contradictions in laws and in customs and, and rules. Is, is that the case? I think it's happening more and more because the conversation, we, as I said before, is developing. Uh, and with McGirt out there, there's a, there's a pivot point. I mean, McGirt is such a, it's a, it's a, a watershed moment. And the idea of indigenous resource rights and lands and how and self-governance those sovereignty issues are being developed and i think those conversations that are being developed are, are great especially on the east coast but when you're dealing with let's say entrenched parties and the idea of in the midwest and in, in certain places in the northwest where the idea of land is a hotbed issue whether it's um the bureau of land management whether it's um uh the idea of um I don't want to use the word manifest destiny, but in some in some per political circles, that's still the idea. So it's overcoming that. And on the federal side, if you're dealing with, with entrenched parties who are um, very much for the use of indigenous pop indigenous identified territories for land use, there's going to be differences in congressional representation, senatorial representation, and how the courts interpret things in certain areas. So that's the conversation that has to happen nationally, because locally it's happening in a way that's progressing. But nationally, depending on the state you're in, it can have a different tone and topic and direction. Now, um, as you mentioned, most of those legal issues uh, are likely to be federal or tribal rather than uh, state-based. But um, I believe you know, New York has at least one, maybe only one, uh, indigenous judge would be Judge Montour in Buffalo. 
Um, is that correct? Is he the only only one? As far to as my as? best, to the best of my understanding, people identify themselves as such. Yes. Hmm. But there's a lot of history in the, in family trees. If you go to ancestry.com, you can shake it and you'll find something falling out. You're like, oh, where did that come from? Um, so I think I think they were a little bit more diverse than we sometimes think we are. Uh, and if you look at, uh, especially when you're talking about Latino judges being um, partially indigenous in some point, there has to be a little bit more, if you ask me. I think we're I think we're all in a good way going forward. I, I think as much as the challenges are that are out there, I don't think there's nothing we can't overcome because how do you have a place like Brooklyn if you were just really bad people? I just don't get it. I, I think we're all good. I mean I love Buffalo, I love Albany and but New York New York is New York is very special and I think that's part of it. And whether it's the Roosevelt's or the <laughs> or the Rockefellers even, um, when you look at what New York's created over the last two hundred years, oh, we're kinda lucky. Do you find the court system welcoming to diversity? I have not had a bad experience yet. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And with that, that's a good place to end. Uh, Troy, thank you so much for that very insightful and informative and, at least for me, educational uh, discussion. It was an honor to be here on Diversity Dialogues. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for listening to Amici. You find all of our recent podcasts on the court system's website at www.nycourts.gov. And you also find a transcript of each interview. If you have a suggestion for an Amici podcast, let me know. I'm John Carr, and I can be reached at 518-453-8669 or jcaher at nycourts.gov. In the meantime, stay tuned.